0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, maybe you have a device uh, with an app on it, or you have a printed copy, as I prefer, I want you to find the book of Mark, chapter 16. I'm overwhelmed with gratefulness this morning. I'm grateful for all of you. I'm grateful for our overflow over in our student center, which is almost full. I'm grateful that I just received a text of a picture. There's standing room only in our Woodruff campus this morning. I'm grateful for the goodness of God. I'm so thankful for that. So when you think about our congregation in Woodruff, our folks over in our overflow, those of you joining us online, those of you here with us live, that adds up in a pastor's mind to about 284,000 people this morning that will have attended our Easter service. There's no shortage of content for Easter. We all know the topic. The topic is the resurrection. The New Testament, has over 300 verses that are somehow, some way, speaking to, concerned with, or connected to the resurrection. If you think about the resurrection from an overview standpoint, it does much in our lives. Here's a really quick list. The resurrection is a sign, the Bible says, to unbelievers that Jesus is the Son of God. It answers doubts in my mind when I begin to question or wonder, is he who he says he is? It verifies that what Jesus said is true. You can trust a man who tells you he's going into a grave and he's going to come out. The resurrection is the center of the gospel. Without an empty grave, without a living God, there is no gospel in the Christian Bible. The resurrection is the reason we share the gospel. It also indicates the power for the Christian life. One of the most amazing realities that I remind people of on Easter is that the power that rose Jesus from the grave, that raised him from the grave rather, is the power that God gives us access to, to live the Christian life. The resurrection removes fear of death. It prepares us for the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus not alive on that Easter morning, We could not surely hope in his second coming. Additionally, the resurrection previews our resurrection. Because Jesus was the firstborn from the grave, every person in Christ will one day vacate their own grave. And finally, the resurrection is a foretaste of heaven. Life is heaven. There is no death, no tombs, no cemeteries, no caskets, no hospitals. There is no sign of any of that in heaven. So in essence, the resurrection is not only the biggest of the big deals of our faith, it really is the ultimate preparation. The resurrection of Jesus is great preparation for the future, for the hope, for the gospel. Now, we all know how important preparation is from the time you're born. People are telling you to prepare. They tell you things like success needs preparation. One of the things you try to teach your children is don't be unprepared. You may not be the most gifted, the most talented. You might not be the most intelligent. You might not be the person with the most natural ability, but you can be prepared in business and in life. We know that if you fail to be prepared, you prepare ultimately to fail. Think about all the ways we prepare in life. We prepare our minds through education, our brains. We prepare our life with the person that we love in marriage and then hopefully children. We're told then that we need to work hard and prepare our money to plan, to budget, to to be prepared for the expenses of living and the cost that are involved in taking care of those God blesses us with. We prepare all kinds of stuff. We ultimately can prepare our bodies. I read an article recently where Russell Wilson spends $1.5 million a year on his body. Imagine how good you'd look if you had a million and a half. You look so good now. Can you imagine? LeBron James spends about a million dollars a year on his body. But when you look at the income these men generate, with those incredible bodies God gave them, you would honestly say, it's a great investment. I don't have a million or a million and a half to spend on my body. Laurel couldn't stand it anyway. (laughs) Well, we've all had our bodies prepared. I think about the more unpleasant times our bodies prepared. I don't know about you, but I don't like seeing latex coming at me. (laughs) One of my spiritual gifts is messing with people and Several years ago, I had a youth pastor, awesome guy. He now pastors a great church in Georgia, and he was a little bit anxious. He'd get a little bit wound up, and his appendix was giving him some problems, and he had to go to the hospital to get an appendectomy. So I rolled in to see him while he was in surgery room waiting, and I couldn't help myself. I knew he was already nervous. I said, have they prepared your body for surgery? He said, what are you talking about? It's a laparoscopic deal. I go, I I know, but they're going to come in at some point, and they're going to remove all the hair from your body, (laughs) from from your chest to your knees. He went pale. He's like, what? No, 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 it's laparoscopic. And then I just made something up, because if you weren't saved, a preacher can be a good liar. I said... I said, well, that's true, but in an emergent situation, they may have to cut you open and do it the old-fashioned way, and therefore they have to sterilize your body by removing all the hair. See, it sounded good. He said, dude, how do you know? I said, because the woman that does the shaving goes to our church. <laughs> and then I just left. <laughs> I went back a few hours later after the surgery. He wouldn't even speak to me. It was so worth it. He's like, dude, the rest of the day, every time the door opened, i pukered up. <laughs> In all honesty, there's a thousand different ways that we prepare the body. On a more serious note, the last time our body's prepared, it's not done by us. It is the preparation or the attempted preparation of a dead body that I'd like to speak to you about this morning. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus is in the grave, or so it seems. The crucifixion has taken place. He's been buried by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in a borrowed tomb, in a garden. The women in Jesus' life who were very significant to him, ladies, don't miss that. The last people at the cross, And the first people to the tomb were not the apostles. They were not the disciples. They were the beloved women who were devoted to Jesus. No man-made religion would have ever esteemed women in the first century to this level, which proves the validity of the gospel. Jesus did not discriminate between gender. Though there are only two genders and God selects that in the womb, God values both of those. And he cares deeply for people's souls above the categorization and the compartmentalization the world may place them in. Jesus loved these women well, and they wanted to love him in one last act of devotion and respect. And here's what the scripture says in Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, And Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day, verse 2 of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Only two divisions in this passage this morning. First is the attempted preparation of the body of Jesus the attempted preparation. The reason that they were able to go buy spices at the evening of the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, is that Sabbath ended at sunset on Saturday. Now, this was not just any weekly Sabbath. This was the Sabbath closely associated with and happening simultaneously to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. This is one of the reasons why his family and friends were not allowed to anoint his body after his death. It's one of the reasons why a man named Joseph of Arimathea stepped in and chose to bury Jesus in love and respect and quickly with Nicodemus placed him in a tomb. The Sabbath was upon them. Jesus died around 3 p.m. on Friday. And at sunset on Friday, any Jew in Jerusalem would not be allowed to do any work to take care of any normal activity and certainly to not defile themselves by touching the body of a dead person. And so while it must have been gut-wrenching to help prepare the body of Jesus, these women had to wait. They had to wait all of Friday evening, Friday night, all of Saturday, all of Saturday evening, Saturday night, and then the moment they were free by law and custom to go, they went. And on their way, they took with them the spices. Now, the Jews did not practice embalming of the body. Many of you know that our loved ones are embalmed most of the time. And most of the time, this embalmment allows for a few more days of preservation so that the body can be viewed at the funeral home, at the church, at the chapel, for the receiving of friends. In the ancient world, there were some cultures that practiced embalming. The Egyptians, for example, invented what you and I knew growing up as mummies or to be mummified. The Jews did not. The Jews simply placed the body, wrapped it in linens, into a tomb. The body would then do what bodies do. What bodies do today, even those that are embalmed, eventually decay. And the body would decay to the point that all that would be left would be bones. The bones would be collected, placed into a bone box, and the bone box would be stored in another area of the tomb. And the area of the tomb that held a recently dead body would be used again and again and again. Because of this, there was frequency in and around the tomb. And because of deep respect for the dead and a love for them, their bodies would be heavily anointed with strong spices and oils so as to counter the stench of the decay. Now imagine doing this the moment someone died. That must have been difficult. But imagine having to wait three days and do it to a body that had been mutilated through crucifixion. If you've ever wanted to know how these women loved Jesus, Their act of going to the garden displayed this incredible love. Three women are mentioned here. Several others occur and are mentioned by other gospel writers. I think about Mary Magdalene, who was delivered from demon possession by Jesus and became one of his most devoted followers. Mark gives us a hint, though, that something's gone awry. The scripture says in verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. I'm thankful to tell you, church family, that that sentence is accurate because the S-U-N sun had risen. It would be equally accurate if you took the U out of sun and put an O in it because the sun had risen. As a storyteller, Mark uses the changing of the weather to give us these cues. Remember what the psalmist says about the rising of the sun? For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's never been a more joyful morning than the morning we gather to celebrate today. So they're on their way, and they're worried. How will we remove the stone? How did they even know there was a stone? The Scripture tells us, we talked about it last week, that when Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus quickly on Friday evening with the help of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea had the grave sealed. So these women knew there was a stone, a stone far too large for a few women to move. They were not strong enough. However, their inability to know how to get the stone away from the tomb's entrance did not stop them from at least going and trying to put themselves in a position so that if they solved the problem of getting the stone rolled away, they could go and minister to who they believed had already died and was still dead. And so they go. But you know the rest of the story. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 4 of the 16th chapter of the book of Mark. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. Sometimes the Bible's translation underscores in the wrong direction. I would be alarmed too. I might freak out. I might struggle with my emotions. I've gone to minister to a dead man. I find a tomb open. I walk in and don't see any dead man There's nobody there except this man dressed in white, described here as a young man. Matthew tells us it was an angel of the Lord. That's not inaccurate. Most of the angels that appeared in the Bible appeared in human form. In fact, the word angel simply means messenger. There are examples where angels are described as having wings and surrounding the throne of God. However, the vast majority of angelic visions in the Bible are men and women who appear to those from heaven, and often they are described as being bright or brilliant with white clothes on. This was an angel of the Lord. He was sitting there, so their attempt had failed. There's no body to prepare. They can't prepare what is not there. And then the story switches from the attempted preparation to the actual preparation. You know what the Bible says about you and me if you are a follower of Jesus? The Bible teaches that since there's no body in the tomb, we are now the body. If you've ever wanted to see evidence of the resurrection, just look around. The room is full of people that Christ lives in them. In fact, I hope many of you would say he not only lives in me, he's the one who gives me life and is the most important reality of my being. He makes my life make sense in a senseless world. I'm here today, not just because it's Easter. I'm here today, not just because I want to be with my family. I'm here today as a declaration that I know the king and that he lives in me. Paul would say it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians, now You are the body of Christ. He can't be any more literal. And individually, members of it. So one of the things we see at the resurrection is that while we celebrate the vacancy of the tomb, God's already going to work saying, yeah, that body's been risen. And now you're my body. You're my hands. You're my feet. And what the angel says epitomizes what real preparation looks like. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, first words from the empty tomb from this angel, do not be alarmed. You can translate it, do not be afraid. You can translate it, fear not. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Church family, because there's no body in the tomb, the first thing we see is reassurance. The very first words from an empty tomb are, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be alarmed. All the fear, all the confusion, now is clarity and courage. Think about all the things people are afraid of right now. People are afraid of a geopolitical, tension that is rising between the United States and Russia. People are fearful of the wickedness we see from Vladimir Putin. Have you seen any of the images of how people are being treated in Shanghai? People are afraid to go outside of their homes for fear to be taken away by government officials who have implemented a zero policy in relationship to COVID-19. People are afraid in our own culture of inflation, of the cost of living, making decisions between a tank of gas or the medications that you need. People are fearful. Will there be another rise in this virus that we've struggled with for so many years? People find fear in the political division and the divisiveness and the visceral nature with which our modern-day microphones tend to use, and we struggle to have an open dialogue. People are afraid to speak up about the truth for fear of being canceled. My point is, is that no matter your camp, no matter the propensity of your worldview, no matter your political leanings, no matter your nationality, no matter your ethnicity, no matter the condition of your body, you can look around and see that fear is all around us. I tell you this morning, I woke up fearing nothing. I have concerns like you, I've been given a mind, that mind should think about safety and security. We take proper measures. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be unwise. But what in the world can man do to me when my savior lives? There's no fear. Drive by any cemetery and imagine that all those people faced all the stuff that you and I are facing at some point in their life and yet they still had to face the grave and my Savior has prepared us for that. There's no fear. We don't have to be afraid. The first words from the tomb, the angel of the Lord said, do not be afraid. Why, though? Are we supposed to muster up courage from our own will? I don't have that. Left to my own, I can grow fearful. Left to my own, I can become anxious. Left to my own, I can get discouraged. No, no, no. The lack of fear is based on resurrection. Notice what he says, verse seven. He says, and he said to them, verse six rather, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. Notice, notice the specificity. Who was crucified, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. This almost becomes a creed. Paul says it this way to the believers in Corinth, in Corinth. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this is the resurrection. This is why we gather today in hope. So there's reassurance and there's resurrection. And the fascinating thing, about the truth of the resurrection, is that it leads to restoration. I want to give you my favorite word in this Easter account. It's actually a little bitty word in the English language. It's a word you've already used today dozens, maybe even hundreds of times. It's the word and, A-N-D. There's even a business book called The Power of And, Responsible Business Without Trade-Offs. I'm not recommending the book. I just thought the title was interesting. So, so in, in the idea of and, you can care about your clients and your employees. You can make a profit and be ethical. We like and. And is a great word. There's greatness about and. There's power in and. Let me give you some. Today, I mean, come on, it's Easter. You can have a second helping and dessert hmm mm-hmm. I don't need an Easter basket anymore there are six in my house I can select from number one and two and three and four and five and six because the little ones go to bed some of you might have gotten a new dress and a pair of shoes most of you who are young would love to imagine love and marriage be careful what you wish for, it ends up mortgage and kids. (laughs) Then you're tired and broke. (laughs) We like and, we don't like or, I like and. I wanna close by reading what the angel said. And I wanna show you my favorite and in the Bible. Verse seven, but go tell his disciples, and Peter. I thought Peter was a disciple, Pastor. Well, he was. But I bet he thought he disqualified himself. Remember what happened to Peter? Don't you think it's interesting, ladies, that the women were the last to leave and here they are receiving the first message? Where's mighty Peter? Where's the man when you need him? Peter was a pretty hot-headed, pretty brash, pretty bold guy. And in brazen courage, you know what Peter said? Well, it goes back to what Jesus said in Mark 14. Jesus said, before I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus looked at Peter and said, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter bowed up on Jesus. He said emphatically, Mark 14, chapter, 20, chapter 14, verse 28, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of them got on board. And they all said the same. You remember all those men fleeing? They all said the same. If you have your Bible open to the book of Mark, all you have to do is flip back one page and you'll hear what happened. Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard after Jesus had been arrested, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked and said to him, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Verse 68 But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say by the, to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said, Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak. You cannot find, church family, in your Bible, a more clear, convictional denial of Jesus than that one. And the account goes on to say, that rooster crowed again, and he broke down and wept bitterly. Imagine! If that happened on Thursday night before the crucifixion, and we fast forward to Sunday morning, what Peter's weekend would have been like. Imagine knowing that he now was an outsider because he had done exactly what Jesus said he would do and he had done exactly the opposite of what he promised Jesus he would do. He had denied Jesus. But now a grave's empty. Sin has been overcome. Forgiveness can be offered. There's hope for even those who have been in denial. There's restoration. And so the angel says, go get the disciples. Oh, he won't think he's included. Go get the disciples and Peter. I'm so thankful I've had an and me moment in my life. When I felt like I had gone too far, fallen too deep denied too ardently and yet god's grace always gives me an opportunity to repent to turn to come back and me moments matter do you have an and me moment you may be here today strictly because it's easter you may be watching online because you feel some need to watch on easter you may like many people in our culture have been around church all your life and you show up on Easter and a few other times of the year, but you know, you know as well as I do, Christ is not the Lord of your life. Church of the Mill is not a place of judgment. I have no power to discern the condition of your heart. But I tell you this, if your life is not bearing spiritual fruit, if you don't have a desire to follow Christ, if you're not honoring Him, there is a good chance that your relationship with Him is broken or it may not even exist. Friend, I want you to know, there's a man named Peter who had your testimony. And the angel said, and Peter. And you know what happens? Jesus restored Peter. Peter would serve him the rest of his life. And at the end of his life, as an old man, Peter wrote these words. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, according to his great mercy. What do you think Peter had on his mind when he wrote great mercy? Great mercy. I guarantee you, it was when the women came and said, hey, Peter, Jesus wants to see you too. Me? He wants to see me? Yes, you. He's not done with you. He still has a plan for your life. Yeah, you denied him, but he's not denied you yet. Come on. And when Peter would talk about this years later, he would say things like, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And how? How? through the resurrection. Don't you know that was more than a doctrinal truth for Peter? That Peter thought about that day when he heard that Jesus was not only alive, but that Jesus was asking to see him. Every Christian in this room, when you march into that celestial city of heaven, you can raise your hand and say, I've had an and me moment. He asked for me too. If you don't have that moment, why not today? Some of you've had it, but you've denied. You're living with someone you're not married to. You're secretly struggling with porn. You're being dishonest at work. Your mouth is filthy on the ball field. You're struggling. Outwardly, your marriage looks good, but behind closed doors, you're tearing each other apart. You're managing what most people look like, as a good life, but secretly you have to have alcohol every night to take the edge off. Some of you are dealing with the fact that someone has wronged and hurt you, and the scars of that you cannot get over. And every time you begin to be vulnerable and you try to be intimate with the Lord, that is brought back up by the enemy and thrown into your face. I could describe scenario after scenario, but my task is to not be the Holy Spirit. Friend, I don't know what you're struggling with, but I know who does, and he still uses the word and. What about and you? I'm going to pray and we're going to be dismissed and you're going to enjoy the rest of the day with your family and you should. But I want you to think about that as we leave this place. We thought about it. We don't want anybody to miss the opportunity to respond. Our prayer room is going to be open in the concourse. You can come to this altar. Prayer team members will be glad to pray with you. Some of you, though... That's a big step and it's intimidating, but you're right on the edge and you wanna talk to somebody. So we created a number, it's on the screen. You can text the word and me, no space to 864-405-4124. You can even take a picture of that right now and text later. All you're saying is I'm ready to talk to somebody about something in my life. We have no stones to throw. We love you and we will handle you with mercy grace, and confidentiality. We will speak truth, but we want to create an environment where next Easter you can say, last Easter, I had my and me moment, and I've been walking with the Lord ever since. Remember, the most powerful word on Easter for Peter was and.